Revelation chapter 3 this morning. I want to read three verses to you, and I know we got the beans on, so I'm not going to be too long. Amen? (laughs) Revelation chapter number 3. I want to read three verses for you, beginning in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Look back at verse number 1. Let's read it again. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the blessed privilege it is to be in your house this morning. I pray that your word would be effectual in the hearts of those that are here. Now, Lord, there is a task before me that is beyond my ability. Lord, it is beyond the scope of what I can do. I can preach your word by your grace and help, but I cannot penetrate the hearts of those that are here. So, Lord, I'm trusting your precious spirit to do the work that I cannot do. Pray that you'd help me to preach with unction and power. Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ would increase and I would decrease this morning. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as you read through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, you'll begin to read the story of the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Let me tell you something. It ought to be a wake-up call to you and I sitting here in Baptist America that there was a time when the gospel witness shone brightest in the country of Turkey. You say, it couldn't happen here, preacher. We could never get to the place where we're godless here, preacher. Well, you don't know what may happen in the days to come if Christ tarries His coming. There was a time when the gospel witness and the gospel light was strong in this part of the world. And God, through the Apostle John, writes seven letters to these seven churches. Now, if you're a Bible student, no doubt you have read and studied these churches many times. But I want us to draw our attention to a practical application of these verses this morning. You know, uh, there is no doubt a historical understanding of these verses and these chapters. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, these were seven real churches. Uh, These were not hypothetical, these were not theoretical, these were not metaphorical. These were seven real, literal churches, places where God's people met and problems that God's people faced. Then we understand that there is no doubt in some way or another a dispensational understanding, or we might say a prophetical understanding of these churches. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, while I believe that the gospel can have an impact on any age group and any any generation, while I understand that there's much of Christendom uh, in this day that we live in that has not followed the pattern, it is also without question that these seven churches do present to us sort of a path that professing Christendom has walked since the day of the early New Testament church. And there's no question about that. Uh, You know, I sort of struggled with that because uh, I asked myself, you know, do we have to be Laodicean just because we live in the Laodicean age? I'm thankful that God gives a provision that you and I, we can repent, we can do the right thing. We don't have to be a Laodicean church. Somebody say amen to that. We can be a church like the church at Philadelphia. Hey, I'd even take a church at Ephesus in this day that we live in. I only have one problem we'd have to face, which is that we left our first love. 
And uh, we'd get that straightened out. We'd be doing good if we could be like the early New Testament church. So there is a prophetical or a dispensational understanding. But then I believe there is a practical application of these truths to the life of every believer. And it's on this thought that I want to preach this morning. As I read this passage, you know that, or I know that you were struck by this because I was struck by it. The phrase, the statement that God makes concerning this church at Sardis. He says at the end of verse 1, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Now, as we read that passage, as we read that phrase, it arrests our attention. Here's why. Because as we look around in this room, there's probably not very many people, maybe nobody, that we'd point at and say, that right there is a dead Christian. Have you ever met a dead Christian before? Yeah, oh my, maybe we've got a few this morning. Come on now, help me. Some of my ameners are out, so let's, let's practice some. You ready? This is, this, is a co- this is a cooperative effort. You ready? On three, let's all say amen. Okay, one, two, three, amen. All right, now I know you can do it, so you've got to help me this morning. How many of you have met a dead Christian before? Sure you have. I'm talking about somebody that's bitter. I'm talking about somebody that doesn't care a thing about the house of God or the things of God. I'm talking about somebody that carries a bunch of baggage around, has that chip on their shoulder. Now, I've met some lost people that way, but I've met a lot of saved people that way. I mean, people that know the Lord Jesus Christ, people that have been saved by His grace, but they're, they're unhappy, they're bitter, they're miserable, they're dissatisfied, they're disappointed with their life. They walk around all the time like, like the throne of God done tipped over on them. And I've met people like that, and I know you have too. But as we look around this room, there's probably not any, anybody that we'd point to and say, that there is a dead Christian. And yet God says about the church at Sardis that they had a name that they lived. But when God looked at them, He saw nothing but deadness and decay. I want to say a few things about this church this morning. By way of introduction, can I say a word about the condition that he ascribes to them? We see a reputation that they had, their faith had. I mean, if you were in town, the church of Sardis would have been the place to be. Am I right? If you knew a Sardis Christian, you said that right there, that's a good Christian. They had a name. Now, we all, I mean, we ought to have a name, shouldn't we? A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. I think we ought to have a testimony. Every one of us has a testimony, but I think we ought to have the right kind of testimony, good testimony. I want the kind of testimony that when somebody sees me come and they say, that there is somebody that knows God. That's somebody that knows God, that knows His Word, that's somebody that loves God, somebody that loves the Word of God. A Sardis Christian would have been that type of person. There was a reputation of their faith. I mean, I, I'm talking about the church at Sardis. That wasn't the rock and roll church downtown. That was the church where folks worshipped. The church at Sardis, that wasn't the dead formalistic church with all the ooh-ah, ooh-ah. Some of these churches ain't no wonder they're dead. They sound like they're haunted when you go into them, you know? I, I'm t- I, I'm t- <laughs> I got to stop or I'll just start making jokes about dead churches. <laughs> this wasn't one of those churches. I mean, Sardis was a church where folks gathered. Sardis was a church where folks worshipped. They had a reputation. And no doubt the people at the church at Sardis, they had a reputation as people that loved God. But I want you to notice the reality of their faith. God says, you may look like that, but you're dead on the inside. Let me tell you something. That bitter Christian that you know, that you say, man, how, how does somebody wind up that way? This right here is how they wind up that way. If you had looked at them, they wouldn't have looked dead, but they were on that pathway. If you had been around them, you would have thought, well, those people love God. They, you know, they know, they know what the presence of God is like. That's a place where God... But they were dead on the inside. That could never happen to me, preacher. It may already be happening to you. Preacher, that could... By the way, you notice that the church at Sardis didn't even know they was dead. 
God had to tell them they was dead. I mean, it wasn't like they looked around at each other and said, yeah, people think this is a good church, but really, we know there's problems. No, no. They looked around at each other. They said, we've got this thing figured out. But God looks at them and says, I know you think that you're living. I know that you think that you're vibrant. I know that you think that you're growing, but you're dead on the inside. That was the reality of their faith. I wonder what God would say about your faith and mine. Now, the truth is, let me tell you something. It don't all happen overnight. And that's good evidence of it, isn't it? The the letter of the church at Sardis, this didn't happen overnight. It's not like one day, I mean, God was walking the aisles and the Holy Ghost was stirring and moving in their midst and souls were getting saved and God was moving and working and then the next day they wake up and their church has died and their Christianity is empty and their religion is vain and their worship is nothing. It happened over a course of time. And you know that's what happens in your life too. Let me tell you something, that bitter Christian that you look at and you say, how'd they get that way? It didn't happen overnight. There was a slow and steady decline that took place in their life. Let me tell you something, we better watch this thing because it's real easy to wake up one day and be miserable. It's real easy to just wake up one day and be miserable. It's easy to wake up one Sunday morning and say, I don't even know why I go down to that place anymore. I was thinking about that last night. I was laying in bed and I was praying and I was thinking to myself, you know, why am I going tomorrow? Am I going because I'm the pastor or am I going to meet with God? Let me tell you something. I'm just as prone to it as you are, if not more prone. I mean, you might miss church and some folks might say, well, I wonder where they is at. If I miss church, people notice. Right? I mean, you know, like 1125 comes around. Everybody's looking around going, what now? And I'd ask myself, why am I going? What is my purpose? Am I, am I just going to get through a sermon? Am I just going because that's what's expected? Am I just going because, hey, it's, it's food day? I'm really, we're really going to thin the crowd this morning, ain't we? Why am I going? You see, it all happens. It all happens. You wake up one day and you realize that over the past five years, ten years, your walk with the Lord has been dying. And you don't know how it happened. He says this church, there's a condition he ascribes to them. But I want you to notice the course that he describes about them. Now, how did that happen in their life? You ready? You might be on this course this morning. You know that? I could be on this course this morning. How does it happen? How does a person get that way? Well, I want you to notice a few things that took place. Look down at verse number 2. He says this. He begins by saying, be watchful. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Now, that word watchful is interesting. You know what it means? It literally means to chase sleep. In other words, it's, it's like John is looking at this church and he's saying, you think that you're living, but actually you're dead. You better wake up before it's too late. You better wake up while there's something left. And you better pay attention. I'd say this, that the first thing that happened is they lost interest in the things of God. If he's telling them to be watchful, it's because they weren't being watchful. If he's telling them to wake up, it's because they had fallen asleep. You see, they had lost interest in the things of God. That's the first thing that happens in a believer's life. Let me tell you something. If you find yourself... I was talking to somebody about it this morning. In fact, I think it was talking to Senior Saints. You know, they say that Thomas Edison used to, in his workshop, he would put up like hundreds of clocks. He would put up just a multitude of clocks. He'd set every one of them to a different time. They asked him one day, they said, you know, great inventor, why did you do such a thing? He said, I hate a clock watcher. 
And he did that so that people would work till they is finished instead of working until quitting time. Now, how many of you had jobs where that's what you had to do? Anybody ever had a job like that? You didn't work till five. You worked till done. I found this to be true. Listen carefully. If you're watching your clock, ten minutes of church is too long. But if you're watching the Lord, two hours won't be too long. Now, I understand. Let me tell you something. I'm long-winded. I know I'm long-winded. I mean, I ain't going to be a hypocrite. I mean, I, the first sermon I preached, you know this? I, some of you all know this. Some of you don't. First sermon I ever preached. You know, you always hear people tell these stories. They'll say, oh, first sermon I preached, three minutes long. I was scared to death. I was first sermon I preached, an hour and five minutes. I've got it on CD. You say, oh, he's getting worse. No, neighbor, I'm getting better. <laughs> but you know, there's a great danger in just losing interest in the things of God. Man, that Bible is just boring. Them songs, I've heard them old songs before, they're just boring. Man, that, uh, that sermon, that preacher is just going on and going on and going on. Let me tell you something, I found this to be true. If God can use a donkey to speak, and He can, I think it'd be good if we'd check ourselves when we lose interest in the things of God. I ain't saying that for me, I'm saying that for you this morning. I'm just saying that we better be careful when we begin to grow bored with the things of God. Now, everybody gets bored with a bored sermon. Everybody gets bored with a boring song. Everybody gets bored uh, with a boring lesson. But when it comes to a place where we look around, folks is worshiping, folks is getting help, God's moving and God's stirring, and we're sitting and we're uh, picking our fingernails and we're checking our clock, something's wrong in our life. That's the first step. That's the first step. We see in this passage that they lost interest. But I want you to notice, secondly, that they let go. He says this to them. This is interesting. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. You know what that tells me? God says, You have died, but there's still some things that are living, and you better hang on to them. You better not let those things go. Can I give you an application of that this morning? When the Spirit of God moves and stirs in your heart, that's not death. That's life. That's life, man. He's the spirit of life. The words of Christ are spirit and they are truth and they are life and they are real. And when the Word of God penetrates your life and when the divine finger of God writes in the sand of your heart and lays your iniquities out plain before you and shows you that you've sinned and you've done wrong, oh, what a temptation there is to push it away, to let go of it, to lose interest in it. But you better not let it go because there's something alive that's remaining. And you better grab hold of it and strengthen it. In other words, when those times come, don't turn away. Turn towards them. When the Spirit of God convicts you, don't say, ah, too late for me. Say, maybe it's not too late for me. And grab hold of those things. We see that they lost interest and we see that they uh, let go. And by the way, let me say this. There's a real danger. You know what he says there? He says the things that are what? Ready to die. Ready to die. Now, I believe with all my heart that you can never lose your salvation. And more importantly than that, the Word of God teaches that. Even if I didn't believe it, the Word of God teaches that you can never lose your salvation. But you better not think for one second you can't lose your joy. Don't think for one second you can't lose your worship. Don't think for one second that you can't lose your walk. Those things can dissipate. They can just float up like a vapor into the air. And you say, oh, preacher, I'd never lose that. That's what they said. We'll never be like that church. 
And the Lord says, there's some things that are about to die if you don't catch them. There's some things that are about to die if you don't catch them. You say, it can't get no worse. It can get worse. It can get worse. We see in this passage that they... They let go of some things, and we see that they lost interest in the things of God. And I want you to notice a, a third thing. Look what he says at the end of verse number 2. He says this, For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Now, allow the context to educate us this morning. What's he talking about? Now, he's saying, you look like you were living. You look like you're, I mean, you look like the type of Christian that everything's okay and everything's all right. You look like you're fine, and you think you're fine, and everybody thinks you're fine. But he says, I have not found your works perfect before God. Let me say number three, not only did they lose interest and not only uh, did they let some things go, but they started to live for others instead of living for Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it didn't matter that things were wrong as long as everybody thought everything was all right. Oh, we're getting deep now. I like it. You, you know how to quiet a wagon down, don't you? You load it heavy. Now, don't bother me one bit. When we get to the place where it don't matter what, what God thinks, it just matters what everybody... If we can just play the game, if we can just wear the mask... You know what I'm talking about? Every one of us, every one of us, we've got a mask we keep in our closets. And come Sunday morning, we put it on. Something's wrong there, friend. It'd be good if we just throw the mask away. Let me say this. As a pastor of Wall Ridge Baptist Church, I want to be the kind of place where people can just leave their masks at home. Nobody expects you to be perfect. But the perfection that God is speaking of here, you know what that word perfect means? It means complete. It means mature. It means finished. Can I, can I say it this way? They say, don't worry about us, preacher. We've got it all took care of. And God says, no, I looked at everything in your life, and I can see that you don't have it all took care of. Now, I, I want to be very careful. I don't ever want you to think I'm padding for an altar call. I'm not. Let me tell you something. It bothers the heart of a pastor when you pastor people for five and six years and never see them do business at an altar. I, listen, I don't care if you're the Apostle Paul himself. In five, six years, there's some of us need to get some things right with God. Every one of us. It doesn't matter who you are. And the thing that is dangerous is that we think, don't worry about me, preacher, I got it all worked out. I got it all worked out. Everything's okay. I've got it fixed up just right. But God would look at us and say, No, you've been weighed in the balances. You've been found wanting. Just because you don't go down to an altar, that doesn't mean that everything's okay. There's some things missing in your life. That's how it happens. Never happened to me. That's how it happens. We see the course that He describes. We see the counsel that He prescribes for him. He tells them to do a few things. I think this is worthy of our note. Look down in verse number 3. I, I like this first word. He says this, remember. Remember. You'd be astounded how many times the Word of God calls us to remember things. And the reason is because God knows that you and I as human beings, we're so prone to forget things. And He says this, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. Now, let me ask you something. Some of y'all may have heard something that the Bible didn't say there. Some of y'all may have heard this. Remember, therefore, what ye have received and heard. But that's not what the Bible says. You see, God's not exhorting them to remember what. God's resor uh, God is exhorting them to remember how. 
You remember when you first got saved? Does anybody remember that? I worry when folks don't. I remember when I got saved, man. I remember how sensitive I was to the leading of the Spirit of God. You see, what I received and heard hadn't changed. Oh, let me say that again. What you have received and heard hasn't changed. So maybe what's changed isn't what you receive and hear. Maybe what's changed is how you receive and hear it. You remember when God saved you? Maybe it wasn't just the point of salvation. Maybe you could point back. I like when Christians have milestones in their life. Maybe you could point back to a revival meeting when God got a hold of you. Maybe you can think back to a sermon when God fixed your home. Maybe you can look back to something where God moved into your life and shortly thereafter you can remember, I mean, God say boo and you'd jump. God say jump, you'd say how high. God say move, you'd say where to. And it didn't take much for God to stir your heart. Nobody had to jump up and preach and, and scream and holler and do backflips like a madman and, and drag you down an altar. You was just waiting to hear the voice of God. Just waiting to hear it. You say, preacher, what happened? Did that happen to me? I don't know. Did it happen to you? Are you as sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of God today as you ever have been in your life? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Can God ring your bell today like He could always? When He calls your name, do you listen today? Well, uh, looking back, you know, I, every year we do camp every year. And, uh, and we got some of our, our workers here for camp, and, and a lot of them. And, I, and I'm a camp worker. Uh, you know, I mainly just preach, but I mean, I'm, a, I'm a camp worker. And, 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 man, it's amazing what God does in that camp. You get those kids away from their cell phones and their iPads and the TV. And I'm not saying those things are wicked, but they are distractions. And you get those things away, and you, you get them alone up there in, in, in the country, and, and you get to preaching to them, and, and you feed them a steady diet of the Word of God. I'm talking about you see God sit in and move in that place. I've seen kids fall on an altar and weep in a way that make most preachers ashamed. I've seen the conviction of the Spirit of God grip a soul so hard that they could barely move to get down an aisle and get saved. I've seen people physically shake from the, from the emotional storm that was taking place in their heart and mind as God rescued their soul from the flames of hell. I'm talking about I've seen something real on that hillside. I've seen God move on that hillside. I'm talking about I've seen, I've seen people shout that I would have never thought I would have seen shout. I've seen people weep that I would have never thought I would have seen weep. And I've seen kids saved that I would have never thought would have got saved. Remember how thou hast received and heard. Are we just as sensitive? And us camp workers, all of us. Me. Not just me only, me more than anybody. Am I just as sensitive on Wall Ridge Road as I am in Big Ridge Park? Are you just as sensitive today as you were the day that you knelt up from the feet of Calvary and had asked Christ to save you? Has God gotten more of you or has God gotten less of you since that day? He says, remember, remember, remember how thou hast heard and received. Then number two, he says there's some things you ought to retain. He says you ought to, you ought to remember, but you ought to hold fast is what he said. I know, I know how the world works. I know that the influences of hell and the influences of the world and the influences of your flesh would seek to pull you with teams of horses away from the feet of your blessed Savior. I know that all the influences of carnality would pull you away, but I'm begging you this morning, let me beg you this morning, let me beg you this morning to hold fast and don't let go of the feet of the Savior. 
You'll wake up one day and say, how did I get so far? But I can point you to this morning, this day, right now, and say, hang on and don't let go. Don't let go because it'll pull you away. It'll pull you away and you'll wake up one day with your life in pieces and say, how did it happen? Because you didn't hold fast to the feet of the Savior. I'm saying retain some things. I'm saying don't put that Bible on your bookshelf to sit there. Don't close and lock the door to the prayer closet to not go in anymore. Uh, Don't give up the blessed presence and fellowship and communion in the house of God. Don't let go of those things because they're precious. They're precious. There's some things you better retain because the world will rip them out of your hands if you let them. The devil will rip them away from you if you'll let them. And they may not mean much right now. You may have lost interest right now. They may not be as sweet to you right now. You may not be able to remember like you once did. But one day you'll wish you could get them back. There's some things you better retain. You say, how do I do that, preacher? How do I do that? I've remembered what I once was and I want to retain these. How do I do it? Well, notice the third thing he says. He says, repent. Repent. I'm a repentance preacher. I had somebody ask me one time, you preach repentance? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, I do. As long as it's in that Bible, I'll continue to preach it by God's grace and His help. And I still believe sin needs to be repented of. I don't believe sin just goes away. I believe we handle it by repenting of it. You know part of the reason we come back and we plow the same ground again? Because we never step back and point to the problems that we had and say, that was a stumbling block and I need to turn away from it. If we do that, we might find it a little easier when we come to that row again before we start plowing to say, whoa, wait a minute. I've been here before. I've been here before. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. I'm not saying you'll never struggle with anything again. I'm not saying that those sins won't beset you one more time. But I'm saying this. We'll be stronger in our resistance of them if we'll repent, repent, repent. We need to turn from it. We know that's what... Repent means, right? I mean, anybody that's sat in the church house more than three times has probably heard the definition of repentance. It's an about-faced. It's a 180 degrees. It's to see something, to acknowledge it's a problem, and to turn away from it. And it's an attitude. You know what it is? It's owning up to the fact that your sin hurts you and hurts God. That's what it is. My sin hurts me, and it hurts God. And so I'm going to turn away from it. And I'm going to try to live right. Listen to me. There, there is no... I, I'm thankful that God forgave me of my sin at Calvary, aren't you? And I'm thankful that that sin was, was, was once and for all forgiven. But you and I both understand uh, that, uh, that when we do have sin, we have to confess and forsake our sin, not so that we can be saved, but so that we can have communion with the Lord. And we need to understand, you see, Cain at one time had communion with the Lord. And when he came and tried to offer an unfit sacrifice, you know what, what God said to Cain? God said to Cain... Cain, if thou doest well, wilt thou not be accepted? But if not, Cain, sin lieth at the door. Cain, I want to get to you, and you want to get to me, but sin lieth at the door, Cain. I want to move on, Cain, but sin lieth at the door. When we don't repent of our sin, sin lieth at the door. And then finally, I want you to notice the caution that he provides. He goes through and there's a condition that he ascribes to him. He says, you may have a reputation, but the reality is that you're dead. And there's a course that he describes that they went down. And he says, it began when you lost interest. And then you let go. You didn't hold fast to some things. And then finally, you just got satisfied to keep everybody happy. You lived for others and you didn't care what I thought. And then he gives them some counsel. 
and provide some, some wisdom for him to get right. He says, remember how you once lived. Remember how you once listened. And then retain. Don't let go of these things because they're precious. And repent of your sin and turn back towards me. But he ends with a word of caution as to what will happen if they don't. I want you to notice, first off, the idleness that he rebukes. Look at the end of verse number 3. I don't want to misquote it, so I'll read it carefully to you. He says this, If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He first rebukes idleness. Some of you say, Preacher, what will happen if I don't? What will happen if I don't? I know I need to get right. I know things aren't the way that they need to be. I know I don't listen to God like I once did. I know I'm not as close to Him as I used to be. But what's going to happen if I don't? Well, God gives a warning to you and I concerning that. Let me tell you something. You don't have to get worse. You just have to do nothing to enact this judgment of God on your life. I believe God judges people. Isn't it funny how people that say only God can judge me believe that He never will? Only God can judge me, preacher. Let me tell you something. You'd be a lot happier if I judged you rather than God judged you. And you say, well, preacher, it's not your place. No, but you know whose place it is? Uh, We would not be judged, Paul said, if we judge ourselves. Now, here's your chance. Here's your opportunity. You say, that's me, preacher. What if I don't? Well, God says, if you don't, there's an idleness that he rebukes. But I want you to notice the injury that he describes. He says, I'll come upon you as a thief. Those things that, those things that are ready to die, I'll let them die. I'll come upon you and I'll... You know, the devil's described as, as a thief that comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But God says this, I'll set my hand against you. It said of Sardis that uh, they were prone to these sort of nighttime and unexpected attacks. It had uh, basically one entrance to the city. Sardis sat about 30, uh, 30 miles to the southeast of Thyatira. And, and uh, it, on the very back side, it was surrounded all around the back by sheer cliffs. And twice in their history, once under Darius, the king of the Persians, and against under, again under Antiochus the Great, was that city sacked. And do you know how? They came in the middle of the night and they climbed up those sheer walls. You know why they could do that? They weren't watching. They weren't watching. And God hearkens their mind back to those attacks and He says, the way that the Persians snuck up on you, the way that the Greeks snuck up on you, God says, I'm going to come crashing into your life and it'll come in a time you're not looking for it. That dead Christian that's so bitter, that's so angry, whose life in pieces, God says, that's going to be you one of these days. If you don't turn, if you don't repent, one of these days it's all going to come home to you. It's all going to come home to you. And then he says this. I want you to notice the eminence that he implies. He says, And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. God says it's going to happen. But you don't know when it's going to happen. You know, so you say, Preacher, what does that mean for me? That means if you're headed down that road, it could happen tomorrow. Now, I'm not trying to be uh, elementary and juvenile when I say this, but here's a good reason that you don't tell somebody something. Okay, you ready? You tell them it's going to happen, but don't tell them when. You know why? Because you want them to always be ready. Right? I remember when I was growing up, I, occasionally, two, three times in my childhood, I did something wrong and, and disobeyed. And, uh, 
You know, Mama would whip us when we was young, but eventually, I mean, unless she's just real mad, she didn't whip us. She'd say this, she'd say, I'm going to tell your father when he gets home. Now, Daddy walked through the door at about 3.15 every single day. He'd leave out early in the morning, drive to Oak Ridge, and about 3.15 you could look for him. And long about, I don't know, 3.05, my heart started to flutter. You know why? Because I knew judgment was coming. I didn't know exactly when, but I knew judgment was coming. He could have come in the moment, in the door at any moment from that point forth. So you know what it did? I was watching the door. I was watching, I was listening for that, that garage door, you know. That was, my, that was my grace period. When you heard those gravels start to crackle and that garage door come open, that was if there was a hiding place, you went and found it then, you know. It kept me ready. It kept me watching because it could have happened at any moment. Let me tell you something. You may think you're 100,000 miles away from God's judgment in your life, but it might be right outside these double doors. I don't know when it will. God alone knows. You say, eh, preacher, that's for those folks that's, that's running from God. That's for those folks that's burnout. That's for them folks that are bitter. Hey, the church at Sardis, that was the place to be. But God said it could happen at any moment because you've allowed some things to slip and die in your life. You know, God does that because He loves us, not because He hates us. And so this morning, if that might be you, if, if, if the Spirit of God described you in that message, I want you to respond in obedience to the Lord. It's no shame to find a place at an altar. It's no, oh, help me now. It's no, it's no shame to find a place at an altar and get right with God. You say, but preacher, I'm not all that bad. Why don't we quit worrying about what everybody else thinks? And, and let's just focus on what the Holy Ghost told you and me this morning in this message, and let's respond in obedience.